should you come over right now? And then we can go after the <laughs> podcast. Like I literally just had ice cream. <laughs> this oh, is why we're having this conversation. Oh, right. My dairy for the day, I think, has been capped. <laughs> Welcome to my so-called sustainable life, a podcast where we compare our personal sustainability lives with our professional ones. We share candid conversations, interview guests, and get real about the realities of working in sustainability while also working towards a more just future, all in the name of mitigating our climate anxiety. Sustainable Concordia would like to acknowledge that my so-called sustainable life is recorded on the unceded territory of the Ganyan Gehaga and the Haudenosaunee in Jojage. We are committed to listening to and collaborating with the original stewards of this land. Go to nativeland.ca to find out more about the territories we are on as Turtle Island inhabitants. We'd also like to acknowledge that the physical space we work out of is currently inaccessible and that we are committed to making our programming accessible for everyone in spite of this. On that note, (laughs) (laughs) because so much happened since the last time we recorded. You went to Barcelona. So we have to talk about that. Honestly, it was not planned at all. But I was just like, I absolutely miss my best friend who I can't believe I haven't seen in three years during this pandemic. And I just needed to see my best friend. And she happens to be living in Barcelona. So I was a bit hesitant and I'm like, I don't know. I've never been to this part of Europe and please do not get mad, but I haven't seen Cheetah Girls in Barcelona. I know. I know. It's okay. It's okay. I expected this because there's an age difference. And it was beautiful and complicated. And I think just during that trip, I was like, wow, it is beautiful. There's the Mediterranean Sea. The architecture is incredible. The culture of food, everyone's just eating outside. But I'm also like, well, I also have to keep it real and understand that Spain and Portugal were one of the first peoples to start colonizing other countries. And so that is still there. And post-colonial, I don't know if we can say the S word. (laughs) Post-colonial. Yeah, in air quotes, stuff is happening. And then you have the like whole Catalan drama within Spain. And then you have the migrant situation there too. And then as someone who, yes, is a brown body in North America, but like going to Spain on a trip to visit my best friend is big privilege. I have to say I had the best time reconnecting with the water. I've been slowly doing it these past couple of years. And there's something about the water that I've always been afraid of its depth. And I'm always like, what's going to bite me underneath? I fear the ocean out of respect. But I don't know, this time around, I just allowed myself to be free in the water. And I'm telling you, it's honestly changed my life. (laughs) I feel like I have such a different like mentality now on how I live my life because just from the time that I was there, I literally spent every day going to the sea because my friend lives like two and a half blocks down. I didn't book any tourist attractions. I didn't even want to see any of Gaudi stuff because I'm like, honestly, I have my routine. I wake up, I get my beach stuff ready and I'm just like at the beach all day until my friend gets out of work or until we have plans and then that's it. Like, that's all I was there for. And everyone was like, are you going to the Sagrada Familia? It's called the 
And I wasn't sure because it's expensive. It's 35 euros. Honestly, it felt like it was for me, both a museum and a basilica. Like it's designed to be like a church. But I honestly had an amazing time inside that basilica. Like I was so blown away. Like Gaudi really impressed me. I had zero expectations. And it's just on the outside, it just looks like dripping rock formations. And it's just so crazy that they took a stone and placed it and carved each one. It's just, whoa. And then you go inside and it's like, everything is lit by the stained glass windows and it's all white. So it looks nothing like what you would think because it was post Gothic era. So it was just like insane and very gay, to be honest. It was like, I was so shook at how the rainbow was in the church. And I have theories. You heard it first here mm-hmm. on my so-called sustainable life. I'm pretty sure Gaudi was queer. And yes. And in that time, he lived around the 1850s. Catholicism was very deep. And obviously patriarchy was everywhere. I mean, it still is. But I mean, it was very difficult to be gay. And I'm like, there's no way a cis hetero man could have designed something this fruity. There was some things said about your husband being fruity or gay. And when I say this fruity, there's literally fruits outside of the church page. There's fruits on the Passion Tower. There's like grapes, bananas, and it's supposed to represent like the fruits of the different season. Whatever is repressed must be expressed. And I am almost wanting to do like a whole dissertation on gay Gaudi. (laughs) Every time I would bring it up to my like Spanish friends, they would all be shocked by it. And I'm like, why are y'all shocked? Check out all the other buildings. Like buildings could be in drag like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And it's also at the right time too, that I'm really thinking a lot about what gender means for me. When I visited Gaudi's home, in Park Guell, I was like, whoa, just fascinated at how like austere everything was. He just had a single bed and right next to it was just one dresser and a prayer room. And he never married or had a family, lived with his like parents until they passed. And then they say that his best friend and architect friend well, there we lived go. together in that house. And I was like, you should have that. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But as yeah. if the Catholic Church is ever going to admit that as if so yeah I think it was just such a really incredible experience to be there and also to be not only thinking about that stuff but like my own ancestry and like how being a Filipinx person like knowing that like a lot of our history that's recorded is surrounding the colonization of the Philippines by Spain so that was also tricky and like everything, I guess I was just trying to hold space for everything, like feeling very grateful to be reunited with my friend, to have these new experiences, but to also be angry that all of this gold and these riches, it's because you took them from people. Right. Yeah. So that was that. <laughs> I feel like a lot of what you said is so like relatable to the documentary we're going to watch today. <laughs> Before we talk about the documentary, we have to talk about the retreat. Because you said like you're on a journey to reconnecting with water and I feel like I'm similarly on that journey 
because I was a competitive swimmer in high school until I was failing math. So I took three weeks off and then I came back and my coach was like, you are fired. (laughs) But yeah, I'm also on a journey to reconnect with water because it was something that like I feel really connected to my mom when I think about it. Like she was a butterflyer. And so then... (laughs) My coach was like, the dynasty, you must do butterfly. So I trained in butterfly. And then the 2008 Ontario Paralympics, I think I placed like second or something. What? Yeah, there's like an article. It's obviously 2008. So it's a long time ago. But in the 100 meter fly and the 50 meter fly. That's so impressive, Paige. Thank you. (laughs) Teach me how to properly swim. I will. We can go on this journey together. Seriously. At the retreat. Because we did our retreat and we learned a lot of things. And Meredith was our facilitator, who we love. Shout out, Meredith. I will do anything to bring up Meredith. Anything. (laughs) And yeah, I thought like it was super educational and I'm really motivated to like figure out the goals for our organization and rewrite our mission. So exciting. It's very exciting. And the both of us are fairly new and I feel like it's a fresh team from what it was before yeah. the past. So yeah. So we're like rebranding. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. We're having a hard time because the real thing we want to put on our mission or vision, we really want to say the total dissolution of capitalist systems that keep us oppressed. That's not very university friendly. So yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> we're sanding down the edges of our rage. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. So I'm excited. And then we go to the Cascades. And then you got to live your full on mermaid fantasy, which I just want to describe this scene to our listeners so we're just having like a barbecue then Paige and I were like let's just check out these like cascades because there's a little pool so then Paige just like dips her feet in the water like super cute and then all of a sudden is just like in the water and is being carried through the cascades and I'm just like oh my god but then Paige is literally just like swimming through this literal falling waterfall like a mermaid popping up being like I'm I'm just gonna sit on this rock really quick and everyone else was like oh my god are you okay because you're like this is like rushing water yeah well I like dove in like I tried to do like a little shallow dive just to get a little farther and then it was like all rocks and then it was slippery and so I was doing like dolphin kick And then I remember I like came up and I like adjusted my bathing suit top and I was like, peace to the camera. And I was like, was that really embarrassing? We're just looking so graceful. Honestly, I was like, okay, I was both concerned and both wanted to get this on video because I'm like, this is so idyllic right now. So I'm like, are you okay? As I'm filming, (laughs) you're like popping your head and I'm like, where did she go? And then you just yeah, pop like, where is she? <laughs> so good. And then like we were swimming and it was fun. I liked it. It was a right. good time. No, but I think it was super necessary for us to spend time in nature because the day before we were really like brainstorming, like doing a bunch of thinking about the organization, which for me also felt like questioning myself. It almost felt like a bit introspective because we're like, what is our vision? Like, how do we see things going? I'm like, how do I want to see the future and like my role in this? So it was pretty intense. So I think we needed that kind of like nature moment, which nature always grounds us. It always gives us that reset button. 
it was good. And you have to like know what it is you're working for and being sustainable. Like exactly. It's not so that you can live a long time to buy more things. <laughs> it's so that like the opposite. The earth yeah. stays beautiful and and continue. other people have a chance to enjoy it. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. We're reconnecting with water, water. so that's why we watched a plastic ocean. Oh my god! And honestly, this documentary which i didn't know okay so in, in 2016 which is yeah 2016 what a time i actually noted like it's pre-pandemic so the figures that they tell you mm. doesn't account for masks doesn't account for an increase in ppe or an increase in food safety with plastic on everything so it's like even worse now but maybe it could be better because of like other environmental initiatives i don't know i didn't even look at anything up going into it cassiope one of our board members recommended it and so i just found it on youtube sorry craig leeson but yeah so it's about these two explorers and two white people which i was like i know me too it's like white australian man from tasmania who's like the ocean is my playground. <laughs> I don't have a good Australian accent. Yeah. So yeah, it's these two explorers named Craig Leeson and Tanya Streeter. And Craig's thing is he's just, I love the ocean. It's my but playground. But starts off because of the blue whale. Yeah. Because yeah. the blue whale is huge. And crazy. Like when the documentary started, I was like, oh, okay. I thought it was going to be like a David Attenborough like vibe because of like the blue whale in the ocean. He was like, I've always been fascinated about the blue whales and how big they were. And I think he spent like 40 years to get to where he's at now to go and see them. And then yeah. one of the cameras end up and then you just saw oil. And then so the other explorers, Tanya Streeter and her big thing is that she's a mother and so she wants to make the earth like better for her children she's like really worried about her children her love for the ocean came because she was a free diver because she lived in the or something like that right where the ocean was like her playground but yeah so she does have children which, which like i'm not gonna lie it was annoying that at the end of the video she was like i love my children and i want them to live a long happy life and that's why i'm into sustainability how come craig gets to just be like i just like whales and that's why i wanted to do this and like the woman has to have a deep oh i'm nurturing the planet and this is my role and it's like a big noble thing craig gets to dick around in the ocean and <laughs> tanya is i gotta do this for my kids like I've been pregnant, so there's been oh. microplastics inside of me. So that was yeah. a bit annoying. <laughs> it was amazing. They were going everywhere. They yeah. were all around the world. I like wasn't expecting that, but it's true. Like it's one ocean. Yeah. So yeah. obviously they're doing research in the ocean. They have to go to different places. And it was extremely similar to Miguel's research. Exactly. Because there was a an ecologist named Jennifer Shavers. And she was like trying to save the steerwater birds. Um, the birds. There's some facts that came up on the writing screen. Every person will use 300 pounds of single use plastic like per year. 300 pounds. That's a lot. And that's every person year. per person. It's not like so if you have five people in a family, like 1500 pounds a year, like you said, and that's pre pandemic, like even going back to when we talked about fashion, it's like 
Some people can only afford stuff that's wrapped in single-use plastics. Like families that shop at Walmart and as a one-stop shop, like you get your groceries and like your kids' stuff, like everything is in plastic there. And then like companies, they just post like vacuum packed, sealed things. It's plastic, but then it also has like a piece of cardboard that says what it is. Yeah. What are we doing here? <laughs> well, I think that's the thing. <laughs> We're like, what are we doing here? What are... No, seriously, what are we doing? Okay, so Procter & Gamble is going to be like the greatest company of all time. Okay, good job. We're all dead. Yeah, seriously. The aliens don't care about our like, you won at capitalism like plaques. I don't know. Maybe there are aliens out there and they don't want to come here because they're like, it smells like sewage over there. Yeah. <laughs> Craig was like, the ocean is my temple. No, I love that. The ocean is my temple. That's also another thing that he said that marked me. I was like, yeah, I can totally feel that. Like for me, what I really love about submerging my body in the ocean and a side note in Barcelona, there's a couple of like optional clothing beaches and there's nothing more liberating than going into the water like naked. It's It's my dream. (laughs) Already, I feel like when I'm submerged in the water, I don't feel gravity. So there's no pressure. And then without the clothing, I feel free and I totally can understand why the ocean is my temple. I honestly, I cried when I left Barcelona because of the ocean. I was like, I'm going to miss you. That's completely fair. Very much like me, my first sleepover, I cried after my friends left. Oh, just a bunch of tender queers on here. I'm only half a tender queer. The rest of me is hardened by life. Then... There's Dr. Sylvia Earle, who's an oceanologist, and she said Great Lakes, 80% of stuff on the shoreline is plastic. Mm-hmm. So this is, I feel relevant to us because we're in Canada. And- yes. But that's pretty crazy. 80% of the stuff on the shoreline in the Great Lakes is plastic. Yeah. Which- and then it washes up. It goes yeah, into the St. Lawrence Seaway. So that kind of makes sense why Miguel's in different places, the rivers. I mean, it's all connected. Yeah, it's one ocean. That honestly blew my mind because, yeah, it is one ocean. They teach you that it's five. And to that, I say borders imply the violence of their maintenance. And me, what I thought was crazy is that like when they were looking for the whale, you have to go into the deep parts of the ocean, right? Because that's where they're at. Right. They go to the bottom of the ocean with these big like bug robotic arms. They're a machine called a manipulator. Like, why is it called a manipulator? Call it the save the earth arm. So yeah, they use this manipulator to pick up plastic in the deep trenches. And I'm not afraid of water, but them diving that deep, it gave me the heebie-jeebies. It's dark. And can you imagine, like, when I saw the plastic that was on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of France, I'm like, yeah. is this for real? The like layers looks- that are perfectly preserved. Oh my God. Yeah. And like the single use water bottles, which by the way, when I was in Spain, I noticed that there's a huge water scarcity there. Like we're very lucky in this part of the world. Like a lot of people use single use plastic. Yeah. So it's just like known because like you don't know if every single water is like drinkable. So I was seeing a lot of people just buy these plastic bottles if you didn't have like your 
refillable water. And I remember I was at the beach and I asked them to fill my water bottle with tap water, just regular tap water from their sink. And they were like, it's going to be four euros. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? For tap water, like four euros. So converted, it's probably around like six dollars, six, seven dollars for tap water. If you think yeah. about it, the water bottles at our grocery stores that are like glass, right? It's like filtered water, like all buzzwords, by the way. Like you True. should just drink water. Yeah, like those boss water bottles, like that is eight dollars. And then like you can keep the, the bottle after, and then you don't put plastic into the ocean but you get a water bottle forever <laughs> like four dollars like, for just tap water and also oh, who has money so for eight dollars for water in a glass bottle i'm not saying it's reasonable I'm just i know saying, like the difference we're living in really wild times and honestly water is life and we forget it we really take it for granted as we continue to talk about this i was just like for me like i had to break down this documentary in literally like three days because i was just like so upset especially like having this moment with feeling so safe being in water. And like, I felt it felt so nurturing. And when you get out of the water, it's almost as if it's like osmosis, where it just takes away all this like negative energy and pressures. And then seeing how like, we're so disconnected from that emotion of being in the water that we're just like, perpetuating capitalism. Well, yeah, if you live in a city, and you don't ever see nature, you have no investment in protecting it. Exactly. Oh, you're like, it's fine. I'm surrounded by concrete. It's and see, seeing those like water bottles at the bottom of the ocean was just like crazy. And then learning that toxins are like leaching into. Yeah, the plastics. Yeah. I felt like guilty about the water bottle thing too. Like my brother, he uses single use plastic water bottles, like because he doesn't have good dexterity. And so yeah. it's just easy to just drink from plastic water bottles. It's like people need plastic. People that, need that's it. That's the thing. It's exactly. It's always the same conversation. It's just like fashion, just like plastic. It's not like we're at a point in our civilization where we like need these things. But is there a better way to produce it and mindfully consume it? Like your brother needs to use this because he needs it. But there's some people that can just make a little bit more effort and not use single use plastic. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're capable to just have that, I don't know, moment to think before. Well, exactly. It's like you have privilege. So you can privilege. avoid certain things. I feel like that's what we're all trying to get to the finish line of capitalism where we're not affected by it anymore. So it's like, why don't we just do things differently <laughs> like we can change the society that we built yeah i feel maybe people don't necessarily want to be rich and famous they just want like an even work-life balance they want recognition for their achievements they want to be able to have self-actualization and go through that journey in their lifetime that's what celebrities are doing like that's what like people on competition shows like kelly clarkson for example random small town girl True. wins competition show has been famous for how 20 years and people are like oh she deserves that she deserves everything everybody deserves everything that when you're famous and nice but it's like you can be nice and not famous and still want like room and have dreams and goals like hello absolutely family. yeah so I feel like that's what people are responding to when they're like, I want to be able to not have to think about these things. Well, then let's 
figure out an alternative way of doing things so we don't have to think about it. If we were using solar energy, it really is just like policymakers and politicians and companies that don't want to let go of the profit. So they rather burn fossil fuels and do fracking. Oh, the fracking? When like solar energy would be so powerful and so good. There are things called gyres. Gyres? Yeah, yeah. It's like pockets of the currents that make up like the garbage patches. So there's the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Like when I was hearing the numbers, I felt very overwhelmed. It was almost as if it's like my second awakening to all these things. Because like the first time was like when I was hearing all the numbers for the textile industry. And it also contributes to all the microplastics in the ocean. But then to just see like how deeply dependent we are on plastics and to hear those numbers about like microplastics and then like the researchers being like, oh, look, doesn't it look like little eggs? You know, when they finally like decompose, I was like, right. These things. Yes. Yes. A lot of the plastic that was in this ocean is macroplastics because microplastics is the breakdown over a long period of time. Microplastics are really small. Macroplastics are really big and in the ocean still. And then they also said that toxins stick to the plastic from the industry. So you know how they say recycle, but first rinse out your containers, like toxins from the industry sticks to that. And then it stays on the plastic and makes it worse. Plastic is an endocrine disruptor. Yes. Majority of the plastic in the oceans is found in Sri Lanka, China, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, and Indonesia, which are all like the places that the global north outsources their production of their goods. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And it's infuriating. There's Typhoon Vincent. Vincenze? Vincente. Uh, Oh, yeah. And that's like what burst apart all those nurdles. Yes, exactly. Well, like, I remember this clip. It was like, at the shoreline of Hong Kong or something and there was six like cargo carriers that were literally carrying just like nurdles just plastics right like plastic beads and stuff and yeah a nurdle is a raw piece of plastic made specifically to create into other plastics and it was on the coast of Hong Kong the typhoon it disrupted the flow and then I think only five of the cargoes have been found there's one that's still I mean it might have been found now but when they made the documentary like it was still floating around and then like it's ending up in the guts of all the fish yeah and it's just like in the shorelines it looked like sand and snow and I was so confused the nurdles completely destroyed the local market because they would fish and then they would cut them open and find like six to nine pieces of nurdle in the fish and so then they couldn't use that fish yeah like they couldn't sell it to like the fish markets like people didn't want to buy it So it's clear to see how in the food supply chain, like a lot of fishermen rely on fishing. Like it's a big industry that feeds a lot of people. And it was crazy when they opened the fish and you could see the plastics. They're like, you don't need a microscope to see the plastics in this fish's gut. They look like smaller versions of those balls that you get that have a thing inside of it from the gumball machine. It has like a little Pokemon inside of it. They look like that. I think they pan into like Fiji at some point. And then there was this woman that was cooking this meal over the fire. I had to take a break for that. I was like, oh my God, this kind of reminds me of like, 
my grandma Kunching's place because she lives like in the almost in the rural, like deep jungle areas. And like, that's just how people live out there, like cooking over fire. And I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be like a nice segment, like from all this, like stuff yeah. that I've been watching. And then she's like making this meal with like taro leaves and coconut milk and fish. And I'm like, oh my God, that's very similar to a dish that I love to make this Filipino dish called Laing, which also uses taro leaves and coconut milk. And then all of a sudden it pans on her burning plastic as a substitute for kerosene. And I'm like, oh, of course. And then it pans up and the flame is black. Like you don't really, they don't focus on it. They don't, you don't really notice it. The flame is black. The smoke is black. And yeah. they cook on that three times a day and plastic is everywhere. So it's, of course, they it, will use that. Yeah. And it's cheaper than kerosene. Yeah. I mean, so, and then there was also a scientist that was like taking tests to see if it would affect their lungs. And one of the samples yeah. completely black. Ugh. Like they compared it from like wood smoke, which was yes. like a, like a light orange. And then literally this one was like black. These people who live on these islands and have been like literally like caring for the land, caring for the ocean, stewards of their islands are now like being faced with killing themselves while their land is literally degradating because of all this plastic. And they're just trying to live. Many of them will not profit from all of these like businesses and all these companies that send you stuff. It's not, oh, there's like this like horrible environmental degradation and you're walking on plastic, but you're also benefiting from like the comforts of the n- global north. No, it's almost feels like they're forgotten. It makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, in all levels, I think we are all affected by plastic, even if we don't think we are. Like wherever you live in the world, this is your reality. So don't think because you're in the comfort of this safety and the domination of North America that you're not being affected by plastic because you are you're breathing it the clothes that we wear it's in the air it's in the water put on clothes made with synthetic fabrics that leaches onto your skin like the oils from your skin like interact with that exactly and like when you move the fiber weaving like loosens up Mm -hmm. then those tiny like microfibers go into the air and then when you put your clothes through the dryer and the wash, that's another cycle. It's in all levels. But as we've seen in this documentary, there's the fish and then the animals, like the seabirds that are literally ingesting this plastic because they think it's food. They were showing the plastic bag that kind of looks like a jellyfish. And like, obviously, like they're eating it and like getting affected by it. And then there's a lot of these countries in the global south. They're literally living in this waste. Yes. When they were trying to save the shearwater birds they only mate on one island so it's like very important to track their migration and understand their food patterns and like it's killing them and they open the stomachs of these birds that are dead and it's like distended and full of plastic that is like bigger than the bird in like a whole piece because don't digest that I was so shocked when they like counted how many pieces of plastic was in that one bird. It was 234 pieces of plastic and the record is 276 pieces in a 90 day old chick. So that's the equivalent of 12 pizzas. And it's so sad because it's like the birds are traveling very far to get this food, which they think is like edible food for their chicks. Mm, It's like a slow death. Yeah. You think you're doing right by your kids. Yeah. The next thing in my notes is these fuckers showed me a sheer water throwing up. 
because they did. But it threw up like a whole chunk of plastic. It was crazy. And then the researchers just touched it with their bare hands. They're like, microplastics in the air are slowly suffocating me and giving me emphysema. So I can touch this sheer water's puke. So the people on that island in Manila, they had emphysema, pulmonary issues. Oh, yeah. They bring a turtle. So the turtle was floating weird. And it's because it had ingested plastic. And then the methane gases of the plastic trying to break down and decompose stays in their system. And they float weird because of that. Ecotoxicologist was named Christina Fossey. And they go on an expedition to collect tissue samples for biopsies for dolphins yeah crazy to watch like i was like okay cool they're gonna go play with the dolphins and get like skin samples no christina fossey with a crossbow had to like shoot these dolphins and then the arrow ricochets off the dolphins takes a piece of skin with it and it doesn't harm them it's just like eczema flaking off and then they bring it back and then they do the biopsy it's not what i was expecting at all And then I also was thinking, like, who is funding this research? So I guess we'd have to look at the credits of the movie. But if it wasn't a movie, like, it's difficult for me to imagine so much funding for this, like, receiving so much funding for this. But I think it's maybe because I'm jaded about academia. This is like Europe. So they have. Right. They care about the planet. Yeah. And it's like their backyard, quote unquote. So they're like, okay, we'll give you money to do this research. Right. Right. It made me think of Miguel and our conversation on that episode because it really is just whoever funds your research has to care about it. You'd have to be like, okay, for my research, I need 40 crossbows in case like (laughs) my crossbows break. Like, okay, so then we're in the Philippines. There's a Smoky Mountain factory and there are two sites. And this is where they were living on all the garbage, right? Yeah, well, I think after the factory closed down, it became a landfill site. So like you cut into like going into the Philippines, but specifically near like the Manila Bay area. And I think the landfill started in 1995 or 98. And when they were filming it, you could see like the amount of methane from all the like garbage just off. And basically there was this like woman on there who was like, yeah, she's been working in the landfill since she was 12 years old to provide for her family. They grow crops in that landfill too. Yeah, in the soil. I mean, like, I put soil in quotes. Yeah. They grow corn, sweet potato, and onion. Yeah, so they're growing on top of like this garbage, I mean, to grow food. And then there's this other like person who's like mining for plastic. So basically, when people work in these landfills, it's because they're trying to collect plastic to consign it and get money. So imagine at 12 years old, you're out in this like methane heavy, like landfill trying to look for plastic so you can give money to your mom to buy rice. It's such a like a weird image to see. It hits close to home in many ways for me because not only does my family come from there, but like at some point when my parents were younger and they didn't have a lot of means, they lived in a similar situation in the squatters and that area, but I've never seen it be so close to the water and people building on top of the plastic bottles and yeah the smoky mountain too where people are living so the first one is just like a site with landfill and the second one is where people are actually living and it's 123.5 acres of land or 2,000 tennis courts and then there's the Pasig River there's 1,500 tons every day of plastic in that river 
I think the Pacific River connects to Manila Bay. I'm not sure, but it seems like they've cleaned it up, quote unquote. There are people working to clean it up or like actual like research people. It's not just like exploited children. It's like right, 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 right. Yeah. Like it's like from, scientists. Wow. Tuvalu yeah. is the next place they go to. And it's things called burrow pits. These like big like expanses of garbage by the river. Yeah. Yeah. And they have families that live there. This movie was shot in 2016. And since 2010, five people developed cancer, two died, and there's 30 people in the borough pits was the numbers they gave. But I think what was also interesting about this island was that until they got their independence, they were not importing anything from like the outside world. And then like once they did, that's when all this like plastic started to accumulate on the island. So when did they get their independence? I think in 78. Wow. And I was like, wow, this is such a classic like imperialist like move during wars. Like just leave like the people with the garbage and don't think. Literally that's happened to all of those places around that like area in the world. Like all those Pacific Island areas. And it's so sad because this is like what people that live there, they really consider these spaces their paradise. Imagine, I remember the woman being interviewed. She's been living in that burrow pit for 25 years. Yes. Her whole life. Same age as me. Because Tanya was like, how long have you been here? And she was like 25. And so Tanya was like, oh, for your whole life. And they both connected on wanting to protect their children. Like they both have children and they both want like a better future for their children. And it's, I don't know, you don't need to have a child to want to make the world a better place. But that is part of the conversation. It's an inordinate amount of pressure on a section of people that don't have like policy making power lawmaking or historically haven't had lawmaking power so like women and mothers yeah totally who are focused on their children like i'm invested the well-being of the planet for me (laughs) exactly (laughs) i would love to experience the utopia of a well-run planet and we think it's impossible but that's how many places were before violence came through their area and they got colonized so it's not really impossible it's just we have to imagine the end of capitalism stop imagining the end of the world imagine the end of capitalism created capitalism so we can create something else that is the crux of abolition (laughs) we created prisons so we can create a different form of discipline and consequence and accountability So then we get into these two people talking about what we should be looking out for because having kids, you have to have like bottles. Yeah. So when a water bottle says BPA free, that's great. It's free of BPA, but it can have a plethora, a multitude of other things in it that are just as bad for you. They have colorants in them. Those leach chemicals into your water. Silicone and latex are positive for estrogenic activity. Which, using context clues, is buildup of estrogen in your body or like the changing of your hormones to something that's not in line with your baseline based on foreign chemicals introduced to your body. Right. Foil (laughs) is better than plastic wrap, confirmed by a scientist. And styrofoam is just all around bad. It's nasty and it should not exist. And that's a quote verbatim. I'm just kidding. So I want to talk about takeaways 
from the documentary because in the end, like basically the documentary is they go all around the world and they look at different micro macro plastic situations in the world and it's vastly different everywhere and horrible in many different ways. And then Craig Leeson, okay, his final like call to action is he tries to go to different takeout places and he tries to get his stuff in something that's not plastic. And so many of them are like, I don't know how to help you. Only one place has paper plates to wrap that instead of like a container. One place was like, you can buy one of our reusable containers, but the reusable container was plastic. Craig Leeson trying to do this like eco-warrior vibe thing. And he was doing it in Austin, which is like supposed to be like, yeah, like fairly like eco. I mean, compared to really, Yeah. And like, they don't get it too. the workers at the store. They're like, huh? And I'm not going to pin it on them because that would be unethical, but I am going to pin it on CEOs and managers that are only interested in their bottom line and only interested in like getting the product out to people as quickly as possible. Like even I didn't even really consider this because I'm not a Starbucks patron, really. Um, They don't use mugs in store. Like even if you get a drink to sit down with, you still get the to-go cup because the idea is you're going to leave eventually. That's a way to be wasteful that is like easily fixable. I know. So it's not the employee's fault. I think like seeing them be like, oh, I don't know. It just like shows how disruptive it is to ask for the sustainable alternative and it shouldn't be i've heard this quote a few times when people say that nothing is disposable that there's no away like when you throw something away like anything like it doesn't disappear into some magic cloud bubble and is gone like it sits in a landfill or it sits in our ocean or it literally sits under someone's house when you're younger they teach you about recycling they make it sound like they just put it into a wood chipper And then they break it all down and then they just form it back into another bottle. But that takes time, energy, resources, infrastructure, and all those things contribute to the carbon footprint. One of the solutions they have is when you do have to purchase plastic, buy it in bulk. So instead of getting like single use yogurt containers for your lunches, just get like a big tub of yogurt. And so I want to ask you, do you remember the emphasis that there was on like pre-packaged snacks in the early 2000s do you remember those 100 calorie oreo bites oh my god yeah they're still around so then like throughout the documentary too there was this really cool thing where they focused on rwanda yes and then they like, it was one of the first Rwanda- countries that banned plastic bags completely yeah, really cool. this was mind-blowing cool. to me and also brilliant and genius why are we not doing that we should refuse to work yeah. with companies, refuse to import from companies that use single-use plastic or even plastic that they recycle because it's like, we have enough plastic on the planet. Yes. We this do is not need to make more. But also, I just want to mention that it really pisses me off that like these countries that are having to deal with this, like Rwanda's putting this amazing solution and like in the Pasig River, they actually started to like create a whole different like bio remediation where they like are building yes. on top so things are growing again. I like, aren't they getting 
I don't know, some like funding and money from the global north where most of this trash is coming from. They're trying to start a system where you can exchange plastic for mm-hmm. cooktops, like money, those kind of things. And they're calling it social plastics. So yeah. social plastics are plastics that are already made that are already part of the circular economy. Right. And yeah. the most like marginalized and impoverished people bringing in plastic to exchange it for a cooktop and it's like why don't you just give them cooktops like why are like the most marginalized people having they're working and work the land and get plastic to exchange it's a class you can't go to a louis vuitton store and say i'll give you six plastics for this Give them money. If we're going to use money, give them money. If you were engaging in reparations, like even when you're not engaging in reparations, because Rwanda did it, like when you're engaging in reparations, like we could have been so much farther out now. Like it wouldn't just be Rwanda that banned plastics completely. And we as consumers have to demand it, but we also have to demand it on like a political level too. Yeah. And it's like really crazy because it's giving me very like savior guilt vibes. You know what I mean? Wrapped up in this like buzzwords of like circularity, social economy, everyone is winning, win, win, win. No, people are exchanging labor and time and energy. And you're just like sitting there in an air conditioned room guarding the cooktops. What? Why don't you pick up the plastic, calculate how much it's worth, and then go give it to somebody. And then they end the documentary saying, from knowing comes caring, and from caring comes change. And then I actually looked into it because what we've been talking about with direct-to-consumer businesses, I really want to figure out like if the convenience is worth it. Yeah. The plastic use and I mean now I feel like it's not like even the recyclable bags that you get like from a good food basket for example like that plastic is leaching into the vegetables that are sent to you like that kind of thing like the solution from this documentary really seems that education is the answer and once people know about it they'll feel like activated mobilized focused and galvanized focused and galvanized and ready to take the crown. Absolutely. I mean, the beginning, right? Especially in the conversation around plastic, like the first plastic we made, which still hasn't been broken up, was in the 50s. And it's still here. It's still here. And I think to come back to what you were like, is it worth the convenience? I think it's not. At the end of the day, the convenience is just for what? Right now versus like the end of the world. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be tough, but we just all have to run up that hill. I'm going to draw from Kate Bush's original inspiration, Sisyphus, okay? It really feels like that. Like, go all the way up to the hill with your boulder, and then oil spill. You're back down at the bottom with your boulder. We got to get through it. There's no other way but through. Like, even though I feel completely like now I have to digest all these images, like, I also know that this has given me even more of a fire and I feel definitely activated to, like, continue. Yes. Continue to just even imagine a different future. I think that's one of the biggest things because it's so easy to just give up. And then that's when you reach into the convenience, right? I feel extremely like privileged to be living in this part of the world 
where I'm not living on top of plastic oh, bottles. Garbage. Yeah. So I'm like, yes, yeah. I'm not like, obviously everything. I'm not saying my life is perfect or anyone's life in this part of the world is perfect. We all have our own struggles, but we can use our privilege to continue to run on that hill. I feel like for me, the documentary was like when vegans are like, watch this documentary and you'll go vegan. It was like that for me to see people so affected. And I mean, I know this is like very simple. And maybe, I mean, there's a conversation to be had about like the industrialization of education. Right. But it's these are kids that should be in school. Like they should be learning about the world. I know. And have guidance. It was weird watching this like white man in a suit try to be human with I know children. You guys play basketball? They're like, ah, yeah. I don't know. It's just... I mean, I like the documentary and it was extremely educational, but like when it comes from like the ocean is my playground, bro, yeah. you have so much privilege, like a hundred percent to surf in clean water. And yeah, that's definitely like my first like impression of it. When it first came on, I'm like, oh man, who is this like white dude telling me he loves whales and loves the ocean and I was yeah. like, oh, but I can also relate to you saying that the ocean's your temple. Where are you going with this? And it's always like that. But I'm just like, I am going to take it from my perspective and also know like that this is just where we are right now. And plastics are a dire problem. And although this whole series in our podcast, we've been talking about plastic, I just feel like the visuals just to see it and and how much everything is connected. Like you said, they traveled all over the world. So it's like, whether you're from like Austin, Texas, or you're from like a very like remote island in Tuvalu or wherever you are, like you are affected. And like you said earlier that when they said it's one ocean, yes, obviously like this is from your perspective, but I know how it affects me and like where I'm at in my journey, right? Seeing the images in the Philippines, it's not like I didn't know that. It was just like, I'm also in this like kind of phase in my life where I'm just like finally learning what my true roots are one that's not affected by pressures of society and also like identity towards like Spanish or um, American identity from colonization so it's seeing about like pre-colonial Philippines and seeing how people actually cared for the land and now at this point in time they're mining for plastic really broke me and everyone is doing their best like, they shouldn't but have it, do that no i know and but it's like like what was in fiji they extracted the coral to make a tarmac for the allies <laughs> and now this is like what the burrow pits are like this is what they're living on like they never went back and grew back the corals or anything like that even if it could i don't think it would thrive i'm so glad that we get to talk about this and hopefully like this will also spark different conversations with other people so like plastics obviously have like their technological advancements and have brought us as like human beings to where we are now in our quote-unquote modern world but we're just doing too much yeah 100%. 100%. That's what I'm saying about these direct-to-consumer businesses where it's like, you can get a wine sent to you every week. Like, just go to the grocery store and get wine. Exactly. I understand, like, delivering groceries, like, it makes sense. when There are accessibility issues. And if yes. you can afford it, like, that makes sense. Even though it being wrapped in plastic, like, maybe good food, if you're listening to this, change that. But, but like, also- things like, I talked about how I got, like, a toothbrush. I don't refill the bristle, like, very often. I just like the toothbrush that, like, buzzes every 30 seconds to remind oh, you to cool. move. And it's, like, a subscription. So you buy, like, a new bristle every three months. And mm-hmm. I haven't since I got it. 
and so those kind of things or these like things that are like customizable for just for fun it's like, why do we need 50 billion companies that will give you magnetic lashes? The market is oversaturated yes. with dumb Shark Tank ideas and plastic. And consumers who are just like, oh, I'm too overwhelmed by what's going on. So I'm just going to ease my anxiety through shopping. What are the solutions? Truly, the solution is just like consumers being more aware of like how much plastic they bring into their space. At the end of the day, I think we just forget that we actually have power to create change. We have power to ask for a different system, but we forget because we're so stuck into just like surviving. Yeah. This is another thing that we talked about in the last episode is like my friend Ninit has like a sub stack that's called Somatic Semantics. Have you heard of it? Oh. Their quote, I'm going to read it to you actually, because it's just so good. If I don't read this to you, I'll regret it forever. Okay. Shopping is the only space in which I allow myself to experience trust and desire. The satisfaction of knowing the simple click of a button is all that stands between I want and I have is such great comfort. A brief permission to exhale, to substitute outstretched arms for noble fibers, to know I will be held and am the architect of a care that cannot be taken away from me. With each purchase, a deep exhale, followed by a rush of serotonin and adrenaline, quickened breath, already in search of new acquisitions, because shelter built solely of cloth and leather must always be reinforced. Oh, isn't that so good? So good. It reminds me of the burrow pits. For example, with the woman who was making food and using plastic to burn instead of kerosene, have to continue to do that because it's not like she'll suddenly be able to afford kerosene. I hope that for her, but you're stuck in the pattern because the way they're living is built on a literally like very precarious grounds. And like if there was people living on the island in a way like a metropolis for example, like they would have to import plastics to reinforce the island. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think they would actually have to import plastics because there is enough plastic. It's literally an island, but there's like not really an end to consumption. I mean, unless we make changes, like there will always be a place to consume and a place to dispose like these systems that we've created where you have access and you can get it immediately if we created that we can create something different that doesn't have to constantly be reinforced but i think that the quote like pairs the anxiety of scarcity well with like the action that you take to rectify that and how that is a very internal yeah definitely the truth of the matter is it's like human beings we're on this earth to consume. We're extracting resources all the time. So on the grand scheme of things, we just have to do it differently. And it's not impossible because it's been done before. Yeah. And And this is like a very flimsy system. The fact that it constantly needs to be reinforced means it's not natural for us. Exactly. And it's a system that's literally based off of fear. You were saying about scarcity. It's just like fear. 
So it's like, how can we center a system that is more rooted in love and not in a very like loose term of love, but love cannot exist without justice. Yeah. So like, how can we create systems that are more reflective of It's like how the word inclusiveness and inclusivity mean different things. Like inclusiveness is, oh yeah, like you're in the room, so we're going to include you. And inclusivity is like a structural, like infrastructure kind of inclusiveness. So like you think that these are synonyms, but they mean very different things. And one of them is very action oriented. Exactly. So... That wraps it up for this. That concludes our episode.